Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. Here you will find Dr. Cindy Elliser and Kat McKeever, researchers at Pacific Mammal Research, talking all about marine mammals. We will have a variety of ways to share information with you through discussing research articles and news stories, interviews with other researchers, and more. Join us to learn more about marine mammals and have some fun. Okay, welcome to the Pac-Man podcast. Uh, this week we have another uh, paper review, or actually papers review, because they're kind of go together um, this week. So um, I'm Cindy. And I'm Kat. And this week we are going to be talking about papers that we actually wrote. So yeah, we think they're pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> But um, we, we do think they're actually very interesting and some really new information about harbor porpoises that we did not know before. Um, and we're going to talk about this um, kind of like a little story about how we ended up going down this road we didn't expect to go down. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the first one is um, one that was published in Aquatic Mammals earlier this year in 2020. And it is a short note. So a short note is basically we didn't do a full study. This is just an observation that we had that we saw that we thought was interesting and needed to be out in the literature. Right. So it's a slightly different setup. So um, it is the harbor porpoises catching and handling large fish on the U.S. West Coast. So this all began with a picture. <laughs> just one single ago. picture. <laughs> one single picture that we were like, whoa, that's weird. Um, And so our colleague on the paper here, Sana Hessing, um, is from the Netherlands, and she actually comes out to Anacortes in the summers um, and takes photographs of harbor porpoises uh, in Burroughs Pass and other places and then sends us the pictures so that we can um, use them in our catalog and and our sightings database, which is super awesome. Mm -hmm. And so as with any time, you're sitting out there for long periods of time, something exciting happens. And she sometimes will stay out there for you know, six or seven hours. <laughs> right. Pretty She's very dedicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, what happened was that we basically, she had this picture and it, there's this really large fish. Now to put this in context, harbor porpoises generally eat things that are small. <laughs> right. So we're talking like herring, sand lance, like a couple, a couple inches or maybe like, you know, 10 to 15 centimeters is, is standard. For right purposes. under as a, what, under thirty centimeters, I think is the yeah the kind of main standard. cap. Yeah, yeah. So these guys are small. Again, again, harbor porpoises are the second smallest cetacean, so it makes sense they're going to be eating smaller things. So the picture that we have is a a really large fish. Like if you ever walk down the street and you look at something, you're like, wow, that would be amazing to eat, and I could eat all of it. You know, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. <laughs> that's pretty much what this looked like. Like, there's no way that this harbor porpoise could get that fish down its gullet. <laughs> right. And so we were interested in, like, well, first of all, you know, wow. Okay. And, it, and the other interesting thing is that the harbor porpoise was carrying it sideways in its mouth, almost like a dog with a bone. Right. And normally, harbor porpoises, as most cetaceans do, swallow their fish whole head first down the gullet. They don't chew it. So the fact that it was carrying it at the surface was interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but it also helped us get a identification of the fish because we could see the, um, the tail stock and some um, part of the head and um, sometimes the whole body, depending on the picture. Right. Which is pretty cool because that's not a lot of times you don't get to see the fish that they're consuming necessarily. They're doing that below the surface. So that would just in itself is pretty cool. Right, exactly. Like, so all the stuff that we know about what they eat comes from stranded harbor porpoises, basically, where they get right. stomach contents. So um, to see them actually catch a fish is pretty cool. Um, and so we are not ichthyologists, right? We don't. <laughs> Just to put that out there for everybody. Right. So we're like, well, it looks like a really big fish. Um, so we reached out to some colleagues that are ichthyologists or know a lot about fish. Um, and our suspicion was confirmed in that it does look like it was a salmon. Right. Or is right. here or some species of salmonid, basically. Yes. Is, is some, what we were some, told. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that was the, um, the first one. Um, so definitely some kind of salmon, sal- salmonid type fish, very large. Um, and 
so what why is this important why is this crazy well because salmon has not been thought of as part of a harbor porpoise diet right on, on the west coast on the US west yeah. coast right yeah yeah to clarify yeah because on the east coast um they eat salmon Right. They have, they have been documented to eat salmon. And I believe also, um, didn't they say in the North Sea as well? They've uh, been yeah, known to take yeah, salmon? So, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's basically what I'm talking about. When the Atlantic, it's mainly the Europe, Europe side. Right. That's what, there's more research on harbor porpoises there because that's the cetaceans <laughs> that they have. <laughs> that's what we have over there. <laughs> right. That's the common one. Um, so yeah, all those, they, they do have salmon in, in, their, uh, uh, in their diet. But on this side, we've it hasn't been documented except for a few cases of stranded porpoises that um, were found to have uh, salmon in their stomachs. Um, right. And we just, our other colleagues um, over in Oregon uh, published a paper last year that showed uh, the pit tags from juvenile salmon that were uh, farm raised, um, found those in the stomach of a harbor porpoise, a whole bunch of them. Oh, that's pretty cool. Right, so starting to indicate, well, maybe we don't know everything about harbor porpoise diet, and then right. salmon might be important for them. Yeah. So we were in the in trying to publish this paper. We had um, we had two different um, occasions where uh, this happened, where the large fish uh, that Sane had taken pictures of in 2017. Um, and then we started talking with our friends in, uh, at the Marine Mammal Center in um, California, in San Francisco, where there was the other long-term harbor porpoise photo ID behavior study going on. Mm-hmm. And we're like, hey, have you guys seen anything like this? And they're like, wow, yes, we have. Weirdly um, enough. <laughs> weirdly enough. Um, but it, what's interesting is that they're fish wasn't a salmon uh it was american shad which is another large fish right and um, they are related to salmon correct shad are, are related to said they're like cousins of salmon i believe um it's a, uh i can't remember exactly i no, I, I don't know they were um I can't remember if they're related to, uh, no, they're related to herring. Oh, that's it. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I was like, I know they're related to one of the ones. Related, that gotcha. Something. Um, Which in itself is kind of interesting. We can circle back to that one. That's kind of an interesting point, actually. Right, yeah. Because point, herring actually. is a big part of the harbor porpoise diet. Yeah. Sure. So um, what's interesting about the American shad is that they are uh, an invasive species. They were uh, brought over here in the late 1800s um, as, from the East Coast, where they're native. Um, thinking it would be a great sport fish and and food fish. Um, and so the fact that we have these harbor porpoises eating those now, and that's not a normal part of their diet, nor is it a native species, is a whole, it brings a whole, so many more questions. And right, exactly. Ideas. Um, and then the other thing that they found is our colleagues there in Marine Mammal Center also, um, one of them works up in Alaska um, as part of the stranding network stuff up there and in Cook Inlet, and they actually found a harbor porpoise that um, drowned in a, as bycatch in a, gill, in a gillnet fishery. Um, and she had, this was a female, um, she had a ton of pink salmon, uh, what we believe to be pink salmon, in her stomach. Right. So basically she was in the middle of consuming it when right. um, she and died. Year, uh, yeah, with the, yeah, with the fishermen. And the, and the fishermen did um, uh, self, they, they, Reported. reported yeah. yeah um so so there's indication there that she was actually eating the salmon whereas we we can just say that they were um capturing them we didn't see consumption because they go under the water and then there you go we can't see them anymore right um and then the, we so then right so we're, we're writing this paper we're going back and forth with our colleagues um adding this information to the paper and then sane sana was out in 2019 and got another capture of this happening <laughs> which was awesome. Charmed. Um, She's charmed for catching fish. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> Porpoise like, eating fish on camera. Large fish whisperer. <laughs> yeah. So what was really cool is that that one, we had a better picture of the actual fish and uh, was confirmed that it was most likely uh, a actual a coho salmon. Yeah. 
which is one of the really common um, ones that we find in this part of the Salish Sea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have, um, so the paper is actually very cool. If you are, uh, you can go uh, look it up because it is open source. You can either get it from uh, the link from our website uh, or go to Aquatic Mammals. Um, yep. It is free to download. Um, they, we have a uh, lots of uh, pictures of these captures um, that occurred, uh, and yeah. at one point you see it like it, he's coming. The porpoise is, porpoise is coming out, grabbing the fish, and the fish is like, "No, I'm going to get away!" And he actually loses the fish. <laughs> and that's, oh, that's like my again. favorite sequence. I think that's my favorite sequence. I just think that's such a cool, yeah, such a cool image. Well, and it and it goes to what we're going to talk about in a minute with the um, the next paper is you know the effort that goes into getting this type of larger fish right you know exactly. and why would you do this why would you put the energy into doing this that you could easily lose it and then you've spent you know how much energy you try and catch it um you know so what is the benefit of it so right. so the story so then we we started looking into okay why would why would these animals be doing this in the first place right out of seemingly out of context of their normal diet and whatever every other harbor porpoise is doing mm -hmm. you know why, why are these guys doing this crazy thing um and what we were looking at, and I had heard from, I think actually it might have been from Dave um, Anderson, um, some uh, cases where harbor porpoises asphyxiated or suffocated. Right. On, Asphyxiation uh, basically is, is choking to death. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not a great way to go. Right. Um, <laughs> so we, I asked some, some colleagues, um, in the area with that work with stranded animals and stuff, had they seen any? And they did. Um, and they hadn't been put in, in the, um, out in the literature yet, which is a little uncommon because lots of times if you see an asphyxiation like that, you put a note out, you say, wow, I saw this, this was weird because it doesn't right. happen often. Right. So um, it ended up being that we had so many that we were like, uh, that's that's a whole nother paper in itself, like talking yeah. about wh what's happening here. This um, was definitely one of those where you start pulling on the string and then all this thread starts coming out and you're like, oh, there is like a whole story that's unraveling here that we had no idea was actually even happening. Exactly. And I mean, and that's what my, my favorite thing to tell students about science is, you know, that you ask one question, good science, you ask one question and you maybe answer that one and then you get five more out of it. And that's right. It exactly. And this yeah. is a, a prime example of that. Um, and it was just so cool to be like, you take this one picture and then we're like, whoa, this whole, like we wouldn't, we would not have put all this together had we not gotten those one or two pictures of the animal doing that. And right. the, the, the coincidence of that, of being, you know, not totally coincidence because Sana, Sana spent a lot of time out in the field as we all do. Right. But you know, <laughs> dedication. Much, right. But how, but again, just th that one time that it happens for, you know, it's maybe 30 seconds to a minute that yeah. that sequence happens and then it's gone. So right. very easily missed if you're not out there all the time, which no one can be. Right. So just the fact that we were able to capture it and then be able to, to, to start to digest and figure out all this stuff is really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there is a, a, a short video of one of the ones from the San Francisco Bay area um, on the supplemental information that you can click on in the paper. Um, and you can actually see a video of them capturing the fish. Because again, Which the you San should totally do because it's super cool. Yeah, it's really awesome. Um, and because the, the San Francisco guys, um, they are, their platform is the Golden Gate Bridge. So they have a great solid platform. They could just stand, the, stand from above and, and watch all this stuff. Um, happen because the porpoises generally come in during um, high tide and just sit under the bridge and eat fish as they come by. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's this bizarrely perfect spot to actually, especially get video footage because you are on a stable platform. Like you said, it's hard to get video footage from something like a boat where it's moving constantly and right. you can do it, but it's just, it's a lot harder to get. So, um, yeah, it just, it's, it's super cool footage. Yeah. So, and th that, that type of, of capture is very similar to what was observed in our area as well. Mm -hmm. So the last portion of this paper, so we, again, this paper was, we're putting this out there. We've seen this. We had, um, was it five? Cause we had R3 in there too. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. We had five cases of the, um, observing this in the wild, free swimming harbor porpoises 
uh, right. that were capturing it. And then we had the dead bycatch in Cook Inlet um, as another example of them consuming this, this uh, species. Um, so we have those five, and when we, we started, again, trying to figure out who, who are these animals and why are these ones in particular doing this? Are there certain individuals or a sex or age or something that is doing this in particular? Um, and it hinted at that they were most likely females and maybe reproductively active females. Right. So let's just take a minute to go into some harbor porpoise physiology, guys. <laughs> just as a quick background. So harbor just porpoise is basically, right, um, they are reproductively active, we think, at about three to four for the females. And for the most part, they will be reproductively active having a calf every year for, as far as we know, the majority of the rest of their life. It seems as though they are reproductively active for most of their life. And it's pretty much that yearly cycle where I believe it's about a nine month gestation period. It's similar to humans, nine or 11 uh, months. No, it's 10 to 11 months. Yeah. 10 to 11 months. Okay. A little bit longer. Yeah. Um, so they'll be, they'll get pregnant. Um, but because it's a lot of times on this yearly cycle, most of the time they'll also have a calf that from last year's calving season, I guess, um, that they are still feeding while they're pregnant with next year's calf. So a lot of the times the female harbor porpoises are both, pregnant and lactating, feeding their calf that is currently in the world. Um, so that can already give you some ideas as to why this is a behavior that may possibly be more useful or helpful for females. Right. And if you, if any, any of you listening have, are females that have had babies, right? You need an extra <laughs> 300 calories a day for pregnancy, but an extra 500 calories per day for lactation. So if right. you combine the two of those, that's an extra 800 calories a day, which is almost 50% more of your daily intake that you need right. to sustain that fetus. Which I always feel like that name, that, that name, that um, number is just staggering for some yeah. reason. I don't know. I just feel like that's just such a huge number. <laughs> <laughs> it's impressive. And, and as we'll find out, is even more impressive for harbor porpoises. Yeah, uh, that is true. And so like I said, they, they, they usually, uh, they can calf every year or every other year, depending on location, but it does look like uh, for the U.S. West Coast and the Salish Sea animals that they are likely uh, yearly breeders. So, mm -hmm. as Kat said, most of the year being pregnant and lactating every single year of your adult reproductively active life. Now, take a minute to think about that. Right. <laughs> as female. Especially any any men listening. You might right? want to consider that idea. <laughs> Imagine having to do that every single year. That would be Yikes. exhausting. And swim in really cold water and have to come up to breathe, you can't lay down and rest, and you have predators coming after you, like orcas. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, few things to... You know, just little work. things. Yeah, you know. So that was just the note um, that we did. So then when we just started talking about it and saying like, well, we have all these asphyxiations, you know, maybe we should look a little bit more into that and see, make sure that we haven't missed any. Um, and so we did another paper um, with our our colleagues from the Marine Mammal Center, and then also um, from our friends and, and colleagues in at Cascadia Research Collective, um, at the Portland at Portland State University and Oregon State University um, as well. So we looked into it. We ended up getting twenty nine cases of asphyxiation. Wow. And bear in mind that, again, this is something that this is, you know, we started pulling this thread. No one really has ever talked about this. Obviously, this this data had been collected, but no one had really ever brought this up, that this was something that was happening on a, on a regular basis. Right. And the, the few that we have that were um, already in the literature, so five were in the literature, and then we have 24 cases that were not, that we found in the stranding re records or our, you know, colleagues' records. Got it. Um, those five, um, were, it wasn't like the paper is, we found this dead harbor porpoise with, it, with a, a fish in its throat. It was about the, um, um, it was about, I mean, you know, harbor porpoises in general or a stranding, um, you know, a whole bunch of stranding records or things like that. So it was kind of buried a lot of times within the text. So you wouldn't necessarily mm. know that that was there they're just like oh and by the way we found this guy and he was on the beach and he had an american shad stuck in his throat <laughs> right would you think that would be kind of a main point but anyway <laughs> right <laughs> but not and that's you what think. some of the reviewers said you know when we were putting this paper out was like 
it's very kind of odd that you found so many cases that weren't put in the literature when usually the first time it happens, it's put out there. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so what we wanted to look at then was again, from our hintings from the other paper, you know, are there, is it more likely that females are doing it or reproductively active, reproductively active ones? And what is the main, the main fish that is the culprit? Right. Because we were, we kind of had an inkling. <laughs> we, had a, we had an idea. We had an idea. Right. American shad might be the problem because the, the few cases that we did see of asphyxiation of large, uh, of on large fish by harbor porpoises in those publications were due to American shad. And those right. are from the 40s and 50s, like the 50s, I think. Right. Which again, it's interesting that it was from such a long time ago, too. I know. Boy, I kind of, then, I kind of nothing... forgot that it was from such a long time ago in the records, too. That's really interesting. Yeah. So it was like 1950. And then the next one we have is like 1983. Wow. <laughs> so we have, so it was, yeah, it was 1937 was one that was actually really interesting. It was a greyhound, gray smoothhound shark that the, uh, and that one was funny because it was the, the fish length was 55.9 centimeters and the harbor porpoise length was 101.6. <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> so she, she, was, she was trying to eat it was a sub-adult female it was she was trying to eat a fish that was half her size oh my gosh seems like not a great idea right um and then uh the other two uh 1948 and 1952 um those are both american shad we had one in 79 that was a pacific herring that was just a giant pacific herring 44.5 centimeter fish wow yeah that's almost half a meter yeah um, and then um, the, oh, and then there was another one that was a sculpin, but that's a smaller fish. Um, and yeah, so 1979 was the, or 52 was the last time we saw an American shad. And then the next one that we see is 1983. Okay. So really kind of interesting in, in that regard. Um, so we had 24 cases of strandings um, that we've, you know, documented. Um, and then the five that were previously published. Mm -hmm. um, and they were all generally around, um, uh, spring was the biggest time. Um, most of them, almost half of them occurred in spring and the next was summer, uh, which kind of coincides with when the fish are going back upstream to spawn. Okay. Um, cause there, a lot of this is happening around the Columbia river. Um, that's mm -hmm. where American shad, um, and salmon, uh, go back up to go up upstream to to hatch right um so the um basically out of those 29 cases 27 of them were due to ingestion of large prey wow so so <laughs> yeah so basically all, all, the all, vast all of them yeah yeah the yeah. um the other two the two small ones um, was one was a sculpin that tried to go back up the blowhole. Oof. <laughs> yeah, it was not so good. Oh, which actually, in for blowhole physiology, blowhole physiology, you can listen to our mm. other podcast on the anomalous double blowhole dolphin. Right. The spot little dolphin. plug there. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a fun one. That is a cool one. Anyway. Um. Yeah, and there was a I we and. There was another case of uh, in pilot whales of a small fish trying to go back up the the nares. Um, so either it got ejected back out that way if the once the um, pilot whale or harbor porpoise or whatever tried to you know expel it, or it was trying to get out, <laughs> which I oh, think is, is more fun to think about. <laughs> that poor little thing. It's like help, help! I want to get out. I'm, I'm coming. With this ride. I'm coming. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh! Not what I expected. Right. Um, oh, that's and funny. then the la the other small one was really interesting, and that was a northern anchovy, and that mm -hmm. was up here. Um, and it was suspected that the harbor porpoise was feeding on the anchovy when attacked, um, and it was attacked by a shark. A the, seven. The porpoise was attacked by a shark. Yes. Wow. There were pre mortem bite marks from a broad nosed seven gill shark. That is so cool. Yeah. So it's like she's, and they, we couldn't figure out if she was reproductively active because that portion of the porpoise was no longer there. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's a different problem to have, right? Like, well, we right? can't tell because we don't have that part of the animal anymore. It was missing. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting, so we, so we have those 27 cases and those two oddball small, small fish asphyxiations, but the vast majority of when this happens is due to large fish. And so then we're looking, okay, what, what about those species? Well, 87% of the cases where we could identify the fish, it was American shad. Right. So there was a pretty conclusively. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like we have the, the Pacific herring, that weird one, um, there's a couple unknown large fishes because they didn't, they, they weren't able or didn't write down what the fish was. Um, and then there was a, uh, where is it? It's the steelhead, uh, steel, uh, steelhead, uh, which is, uh, related to the sam to salmon. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, another showing that they do eat likely do try to ingest salmon as we saw in, in our, note paper um but this con really conclusively says american shad is the really big problem with these animals being becoming asphyxiated right that's yeah they're, they're definitely more um uh what would be the word to use i was gonna say something instead of problematic i was gonna say they'd be more um susceptible to with them right yeah so for whatever reason you know and again we're not ichthyologists so i don't know particularly about the uh, morphology of an anatomy of the fish that may combined with the anatomy of harbor porpoises just not fit very well <laughs> or right. fit and the too one good that they can't get it back out right a little too snug the one thing with right. american shad is that they do have dorsal spines so basically they so, have spines along their back so they so that was one thing that was interesting when we were writing the paper though is that they 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 don't have spines as as we thought oh. they have they have dorsal rays Oh, okay. So there's still a raised section. There, yeah, but they're but basically not, not that much different than some other fish that they are eating possibly and not asphyxiating from. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, so it's not clear that because that's the first thing we're like, oh, they have spines, so that when they when they try to swallow it and then it gets too big, they try to regurgitate it and then it gets stuck and then that's it. And mm -hmm. And that's happened with other cases, uh, the few cases of other cetaceans asphyxiating on prey. Um, a lot of that has to do with that. Like there's those spines that get lodged in your throat and then you can't get it out and then that's it. Right. Um, but these ones, it doesn't seem that those should be the culprit as to why. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and there's that would have been my guess, that, so that's really interesting. Yeah, so there, there may be some, some other thing with the morphology of, of the shape of the fish or with along with those spines or, you know, some combination mm -hmm. that um, lends it to not fit very well or fit too well, if, however you want to look at it. Um, so that was really interesting too. We fit when we were, you know, getting the reviews coming back in um, yeah. and discussing that, which was, you know, this is, and one thing that's great about putting your papers out there for peer review is that they come back and, and oftentimes, you know, really strengthens the paper because you, you see these different, options or different things that people bring up and you look into it and it, and it just makes the paper a better paper. Absolutely. So, um, so, uh, so what happens too is when, again, if you go back to that other podcast where we talked about the anatomy of the blowhole, but mm -hmm. they have the, the goose beak that goes up and connects to the blowhole um, and they can dislocate that to swallow something big. Right. Right. So they can, it basically pops off, they can swallow it back down because, um, and then it will go back in. But the risk is then if you do that, sometimes you can't dislocate it back in, you can't relocate it. <laughs> Ew. Yeah. So you basically Oh, that just, just sounds so uncomfortable. <laughs> well, yeah, you know what? Someone brought that up too. And one of, the, one of the reviewers was like, said something like that, where it was like, seems to be quite uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> what? Why you would want to try to do this, I don't know. Right. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, so, but that's basically what happens here is that the fish goes down and it dislocates the goose beak, um, which is the, basically the larynx, um, and then the fish is stuck. And then the larynx can't go back and, and connect to the blowhole, and then the animal drowns. Interesting. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's not, so, it, so it's, a, it's a, a relatively risky behavior. Um, right. Depending on how often this these asphyxiations occur, and so one of the problems with um, with this is that we don't know if how often this happens. Again, go back to the, what we talked about before with how often we're out there and how often you can 
um, you know, see a certain observation, uh, observe some behavior, is that a lot of the animals that die, that maybe there's more that are asphyxiating, asphyxiating, but we don't see them. Right. Because they drift out or they they go down under or they get eaten before they happen to wash up on shore. Yeah. Um, so again, it just it just lends itself to like how rare it is to actually, you know, not only see those prey, prey capture attempts, but then also, like you said, to retrieve a body that shows any kind of influence of that. Right. And sometimes, you know, okay, you may get the body, but it's been four days and it's been scavenged all to. Yeah. And things go, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So this is likely an underrepresentation of the of this behavior is what the kind of the end end story about that is. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's very interesting, um, and it does seem to be increasing, which is also interesting. Is a, a, quite a few of the cases happened within the last um, four or five years. Right. Interesting. Yeah, and I so something we're seeing the, more. Yeah, we're seeing more, um, and it goes along with um, the fact that the American shad are also increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are increasing, um, they've been increasing more and more and more every year, so to the point that they are the biggest run of fish uh, compared to salmon and other species in, you know, in the Columbia River. Like, right. They're huge. And so they just keep increasing and increasing and increasing. And so we see this increasing amounts of, of this happening um, over time with harbor porpoises. And so is that, a, you know, is that connected? Are these, is it something that we should be worried about, basically? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have uh, 33% that occurred between 2016 and 2020. So the last four years, we had over a third of the cases happening. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and this is, we have this, um, American shad has become the single largest spawning run of any local Andromeda's fish. Um, and that was in uh, a paper from about 2000 and from 2003 to 2006. Okay. So then they're just becoming more because they, they've take kind of taken over to some degree and they were thought when they, when they were introduced that this would be a great species for people to eat, but it never really caught on. <laughs> <laughs> So there's a ton of them there, but nobody's fishing them, right? They're all fishing right. salmon or other species. Right. So the other thing that we looked at and was very interesting um, is, again, looking at who's, who's doing it. So, again, we had our suspicions that females, <laughs> and particularly reproductively active ones, would be um, happen, it happen to them more often. Um, and the the end of that story is we were right <laughs> <laughs> to cut a long story short right we were correct so we have um for the cases that involve large prey items 23 were female and two were male wow um and only one of those females was subadult. everybody else was an adult that was just that weird one that tried to eat a shark <laughs> that right. was the subadult. <laughs> um and then we, did, we were able to determine reproductive status for 18 of the females, um, and 11% were not pregnant, 66.7% were pregnant, and there were four other cases that were likely recently pregnant, um, and I'll, get, I'll, I'll do this just because it's fun to say, one with endometrial hemosiderosis. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. I'm that doesn't sure sound exactly, good. Exactly what that means, but it's suggestive of a recent pregnancy. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, another one had a distended uterus. So again, you know, if, when you're pregnant, your uterus gets like two or three times the size that it normally is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that likely indicates that she had been pregnant recently. Um, another one that's possible that was possibly postpartum. And then another one that had a recent corpus luteum. So also could have been, um, recently pregnant. So if you combine the 12 pregnancies with those four cases, you have 83.3% or actually 88.9% if you, if you include all four of them um, of the females were reproductively active. Wow. So again, like 90%. So 90, almost 90% of the, of the fish are American shad, almost 90% of the females were reproductively active. Interesting. So, so it's, again, it's not like a slight significance or like, you know, maybe it is, it's pretty striking. Right. That, that they are going for these. And so what that 
kind of goes on to as well is it, it, if you have certain parts of the population that are more likely to succumb or to be uh, susceptible to this, that could have large implications for the, the population in general. Because mm-hmm. um, if you're a whole bunch of reproductively active females are now dying. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. That's a problem. You know, we really need we need more females than males. Generally, as we you know say, sperm is cheap, but eggs are much more expensive. <laughs> so you can have one That's male funny. that can go have a ton of babies, but every female can only have one baby at a time. So right, yeah. Um, so the it, we were just really, I guess, not surprised at this point because we had again from that first paper kind of started thinking about this already, but sure. really to the extent that how striking it was, was pretty impressive. Um, And so we go to think about, well, why? So Kat already kind of alluded to it, right? You have so much more energy that is required by a reproductively active female that it would make sense that they would choose, if I could spend this much energy and get this giant fish (laughs) versus spending a whole bunch of energy on a whole bunch of tiny fish. It might be worth the risk, right? Because yeah, you just need that to succeed like one time, and that would that would sort you out for quite a long time, right? And speaking of babies, <laughs> and speaking of needing food, <laughs> my baby. Um. So yeah. So it, it, again, it, it's like well, the question then becomes: What is the you know? Do they know the risk? Right? Do they know that this is something that could happen, or are they just going for the big, the big payout? Right. And does this happen a whole bunch of times? Totally fine. Like, what is the relative risk? Is this happening fifty percent of the time that they try to eat one of these fish, or is it mm-hmm. happening only five percent? You know, because that changes what the risk is. Yeah. Um, sure. And so uh, I wanted to bring up this these numbers here that we did a, a little basic energetic cost of um, of getting a bigger fish. Um, and so they did. There was a bioenergetic uh, study that was done um, by again colleagues down in San Francisco Bay, mm-hmm. and they said that pregnant and lactating females have the highest biomass intake per day needed. So the most amount of food they is needed per day okay these these females um so they needed 4.1 kilograms of food of energy rich species right northern anchovy rockfish um and so this is where we kind of go back to what kat said earlier about uh, them being related to herring right herring are quite fatty fish mm-hmm. um and american chad are related to herring so energy rich is always better you're going to have to eat fewer of those than you are some other lower energy fish. Right. It's the same thing as if you have, you know, you're eating good, healthy food versus eating junk food. <laughs> right. Exactly. You yeah. Yeah. So, um, to obtain those 4.1 kilograms of pregnant and lactating harbor porpoise would need to expend energy to capture and consume approximately 456 Northern anchovies with an average of nine grams each, or you could eat one American shad. Wow. Yeah. That kind and of puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Right. And then the shad would be 5.5 kilograms. So you'd even have a little bit over what you, what you need for the day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and there needs to be more research done into how much goes into the energy of capturing one Northern anchovy versus one American shad, right? We don't know what those differences are, but conceivably, I would think, just me guessing, that if you could successfully catch one American shad... It would the energy expenditure would be less than having to ca- capture almost five hundred, you know, four hundred and fifty something anchovies. Right. One would assume. One would assume, but I don't know. I'm not a porpoise. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then so and also in contrast, noting that the males, there's basically no, almost no males doing this, or at least that we know of. If they captured it, they only needed one point seven kilograms per day. So if they captured an American shad, it would be they would. Uh, it would be as much as threefold the amount of mass needed in a day. So kind of right. over, like, so why, why put the energy into doing that when it's going to be overkill and you may not be able to use all that energy? Right. Yeah, exactly. That's not, that's not worth it. Right. And they only need to have to catch 189 northern anchovies. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> <it's> easier. 
Interesting. Yeah. So um, it definitely seems like energetics are one of the main, if not the main driver here, just to kind of conclude that for people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it definitely does seem that the the nutrition nutritional payoff compared to the energetics output of capturing it does seem to lend towards, um, you know, that that's why they're doing it, basically. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense yeah. as to why the females would be doing it more than any other age class. Right, exactly. And sex class. So we say, uh, our results are thus not surprising, as the constraints inherent in the lives of reproductively active female harbor porpoises make it more likely, if not necessary, for them to attempt capturing larger prey than other age or sex classes. Right. And so just to, to note, too, there are other studies that have shown, other diet studies that have shown large prey items being taken by harbor porpoises. So it's not, mm-hmm. it's not rare that it happens. It's not maybe not common, but they do right. take larger prey items. But again, quite a few of those in cases where we could find information, the largest, the ones that picked the largest fish or whatever, um, in one case it was an eel, were reproductively active females. Right. So again, it's falling into that same category of those who need more energy are the ones, you know, utilizing that option more. Right. Exactly. Interesting. So basically what, uh, again, the one picture that we have from 2017 (laughs) has now led us to understand that this is a much, you know, more common than we thought, at least for sure, you know, how common it is, is still up for debate, but it's definitely more than the zero we thought was happening. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, and so the, that, first of all, this is happening that we need to consider American shad and um, salmon as at least part of the harbor purpose diet. It may not be a normal part or and maybe it's only for maybe it's really only for reproductively active females. Maybe they're the only ones that are doing that, but it does need to be in the discussion as this is something that they, that they can and do eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to go along with that, looking at the fact that it's American shad and to our knowledge, even though it's, it's native on the U S uh, East coast, there's no, um, nothing in the, in the literature that we could find that shows um, that they're part of the diet or that they asphyxiate on them. Right. So does, does that mean that the East Coast guys, it's already happened and they've all basically figured out that if you do that, you might die so they don't do it anymore? <laughs> right. Because they've grown up, they, they've evolved with that species. But perhaps even, um, you know, when it was, uh, since its introduction over here, it they, that hasn't been able to happen yet, right? Maybe mm-hmm. they've just started like, oh, maybe we should take this fish. There's so many of them now. And it's going to take time before the knowledge of that risk filters through the population. Sure. Or not, if it's not that much of a risk, if this is just a small portion of it. So it's a really interesting thing to look at in terms of a, a, a um, invasive species or a non-native species. Um, and the effects that it can have on other species uh, that we may or may not know about. And that was another thing is that there's very little information on American shad on the U.S. West Coast. Right. They basically were like, nah, we don't really need to look at that. Um, and so that's a couple papers that I was able to find basically said like that they, they just really have not been researched much and there's a dearth of knowledge and we need to know more. Right. Um, especially as they seem to be impacting other species. <laughs> and some of that could be salmon because they are competitors to some degree. And although they also can be feed food for the salmon, so juvenile shad can be eaten by the mm-hmm. larger salmon. So you can have a benefit and a, um, and a, a you know, in that respect, it could be benefit to the salmon because they have more food, but it also, because they are sharing a similar habitat, they could be out-competing salmon. And, uh, right. and, and salmon is too. definitely something that in this area, if you're not aware, um, there is a huge amount of research and time and energy being put into studying salmon and salmon recovery in this area because our salmon stocks have been pretty depleted now for a number of years and it has a huge knock-on f- effect on the entire ecosystem. Right. Um, they are the primary food source for a lot of the um, higher trophic predators like the killer whales in our area, the resident killer whales here. Um, 
so that's again that's part of why it's also really important to note that look if somebody else is um you know either eating salmon or if some other fish species is creating that competitive um angle for salmon like we really do need to look at that and especially if it's something that we have not really been aware of until now right and it seems amazing to me that with all the focus on salmon that they haven't really done any research or you know very little on american shad and and how yeah. big they're com- becoming in their runs like how is that not right. like the first thing like hey let's figure out what's going on with these guys Right. Yeah. And I mean, who knows, maybe somebody did do some sort of initial study. Again, we're not ichthyologists. So, I mean, that's, it's entirely possible that that may have happened at some point, but obviously not, it's not, not in the literature in the way that I would expect it to be if they had had those findings, you know? Yeah. The, the papers that I was able to find were, um, from like, it was in the mid two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did like a kind of an overall review of what they did know, but right. they, one of their big findings basically was like, we don't know enough about the species and how it interacts with the native flora and fauna. And, um, it's really, uh, we need more information. Yeah. So if so. anyone out there studies American <laughs> shad, call us, call Please. us because we'd love to talk to you. Because this this is what's now leading to our next questions, right? Again, going back to the answer one question, have a few more, is, you know, why is there a difference between the East Coast and the West Coast? And making sure there is, right? We're trying to contact um, people on the East Coast, uh, stranding networks and stuff to make sure that they're not also succeeding. They're just not, you know, it's not being published. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if there's any information about American Chad and about the in- interaction with harbor porpoises, to make sure that really is a big difference and then to go in to discuss why that is. So we're, we're working on that next angle about, and then looking also at the morphology and the anatomy and, and why basically this fish in particular, as opposed right. to other is fish, a problem. Is, is more of a problem. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. So it was very pretty cool. cool. I, was, I was very excited about this and, um, and getting to work with our colleagues and, and some people that I haven't worked with before and stuff writing this paper. So Yeah, and it's something that for us, we don't really do, you know, like a lot of our stuff so far, we haven't had the opportunity to explore this realm yet of harbor porpoise life. So that was actually really neat, too, to actually have the opportunity to look into their into their diets more and into, you know, in this specific area. What actually are they doing and how are they interacting with the fish here? Right. And, you know, and is that and part of the problem, too, is that we don't know how much this is different than before because we don't know the before. Right. right, which is another reason why we are doing what we're doing because we're trying to find out what is quote unquote normal, um, and what is new, and what you know we can't know what has changed if we don't know what happened beforehand. So this long term work that we're trying to do, and our friends in, in Marine Mammal Center and in quite a few other places around the world now, really trying to look at long term uh, research on these on the species and others. Uh, but that's why it's so important, because we can document these changes and know that they're changes because of that. Right. And also going on from that, too, if we know that they are changes, we may also have a better sense of whether or not those changes are negative or positive, too. Right. Or just or if they if they have any overall effect at all or if it's just like, oh, this is different, but it actually doesn't affect the species too much. So that's the right. other thing, just in terms of management and conservation, like there are huge implications for having that long term data set. Yeah, I mean, this would be like, oh, you know what, after looking, yeah, it's a few percent that die, but it doesn't have a big effect on the whole population as a whole, so we don't need to worry about it. Or this could be a huge problem that needs to be addressed and could, you know, possibly really have a detriment to the population. So, and anywhere in between. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. so that is uh, kind of the sum up of those two papers and our story of getting there, which was... I know I, I like the story just because it's the story of science, right? Of <laughs> asking questions, seeing something, observing something, going, that's weird. And then everything that comes from that, which is just a yeah. lot of to, to figure Good out. Point. It is. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, like a huge thank you to Sana for um, working with us and, mm-hmm. and being willing to uh, collaborate on that paper because that was so much fun doing that, but also thank you for being out there to get those pictures <laughs> I know. Right. And, just, and, and being the, the large fish whisperer for <laughs> yes for calling them to there. you 
<laughs> it's a, we've gotten some really cool information about harbor porpoises that we never would have had otherwise. So yeah. it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So if you guys, if anybody's out there and you take pictures and you see something weird, show it to somebody because you never know what it can be. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of like, um, not being afraid to be the one to ask the question. Right. Cause if no one's looking at it and, and questioning it, then no one would know that there's anything new or anything strange going on. So. Right. And, and so that was one of the things where I was, uh, I, 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 I we had the, the picture for, a year or two and I was like that's really weird I think we should write something up on that but you know other things came up we were writing our other photo ID paper and and things like that but then you know I finally was like no okay I want to we, we should I think this is interesting and I just thought it was interesting but I wasn't sure if everybody would think it was interesting so mm-hmm. it was a really fun experience to be like I think this is really weird and everybody's like dude that is really weird <laughs> and agree yeah and then have all the stuff come from it was just kind of really gratifying that like okay yeah you know what we we know what we you know what we're looking at what we need to see and what um you know what is weird and what is not and getting that information out there yeah absolutely and so this was um the short note that cindy mentioned at the beginning that discussed basically the prey capture attempts um we presented that information um actually at the world marine mammal conference in barcelona spain last year right um which was a super super cool experience and was, again, like Cindy said, it was just a great opportunity to share that information with people who are also really interested in and are studying marine mammals around the world and to have people coming up to us and being like, wow, we didn't know they did that. Right. You know, that was another very, very cool opportunity for us. So. Yeah, it was awesome. And Barcelona yeah. was really cool. Barcelona was super cool. I'd love to go back. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and then the uh, other paper is, I forgot to mention it when we first started talking about it. Sorry, I was super excited about talking about it. Just um, <laughs> get uh, so excited. So excited. Uh, prey-related asphyxiation in harbor porpoises along the U.S. West Coast. Importance of American shad on adult female harbor porpoise mortality. And this was in Oceans. Um, and it is another one that is uh, uh, free to download. It's op- open access. Um, so you can go there or on our website to click to get to that link um, and download the paper. Um, do note that there are graphic pictures in it because we do show pictures of um, necropsy and harbor porpoises with the stomach, con- with the, th- the fish in the throat and partially decaying harbor porpoise bodies in that. So, right. Good disclaimer. <laughs> right. <laughs> there are some gross pictures, so if you don't like that, just skip those pages. Right. Uh, but they're also really cool looking because <laughs> to see the fish all the way down the throat is just like, what? Crazy. Yeah, it's it's pretty weird looking. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, well, I think we've taken up enough of people's time. Um, yeah. That was Sign a fun off one. for now. Yeah. Um, and we'll be back next week with something. I'm not sure what. <laughs> we'll so, figure it out. We'll figure it out, and it'll be a surprise to you guys. Yeah. Uh, but it'll be something fun and cool to discuss. So, uh, until next time, we'll talk to you then. All right. See you later. Bye. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Check out our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M, to learn more about us, our research, and the educational opportunities that we provide. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.